Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental and social justice stories from Australia and the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Victoria and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. This week we're turning our ears to Shalmali Guttal, Executive Director of Focus on the Global South. Shalmali has worked for decades researching, writing and organising around the impact of neoliberal development on people and the environment in Southeast Asia. She was recently in Australia and spoke at the Addison Road Community Centre in Marrickville, Sydney, which also happens to be under the flight path, so please excuse the intruding aeroplanes. Let's hear a portion of that talk. She'll begin by describing the basic characteristics of neoliberalism and how public interest is being redefined in private terms. Uh, Well, as most of you know, neoliberalism refers to a global or the global revival of economic liberalism policies in the 1980s that aggressively promoted the role of free markets and free enterprise, downsizing of the public sector, reduction of government spending on public goods and controls over the economy, including uh, on the financial sector and deregulation of the financial sectors, expansion of the private sector and privatization of services and goods and state enterprises, including privatization of banks and financial services and um, the ubiquitous free trade, which I think free trade has become, I think most people have heard of free trade. It's difficult not to have. Now, over the past three decades, though, neoliberalism has spread across our economy so effectively that despite recurring financial and economic crises, widespread environmental destruction, and a deepening climate crisis, most policymakers advocate more neoliberalism to address the problems created by neoliberalism. And possibly the most visible manifestations of neoliberalism are the increased power of private corporations, national and transnational, and the dominance of finance and financialization in our economies. Very often I think that actually we are more connected to each other through global finance and through the fact that we absolutely have no idea what the banks are doing with our money and the way, you know, the, 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 finance, the way companies are able to source finance uh, globally and move across our economies than even by the globalization of production. Um, now governments are rewriting regulations to boost the interests of corporations and elites. But there is little ability and little political will to discipline or even regulate financial crimes. Tax havens, hedge funds, climate offset, boondoggles, bank frauds, they continue. I mean, all of you have read about what happened with the Cayman Islands, uh, you know, the, the tax havens and the Panama Papers. And where's the action? One prime minister resigned. Yeah, there was a little bit of scandal, and very soon people went back to, you know, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt and, you know, other people like that. So, and I think, I guess the financial corporations were heaving a sigh of relief that there's something to distract the rest of the world. But now, rather than speaking about neoliberalism in general, what I would do is I'd like to talk to you about how neoliberalism has manifested in parts of Asia, where I live and work, and how people are mobilizing to resist it. Now, if you look at the broad economic trends in Asia, most Asian countries are still considered developing countries, you know, um, and the development model that our governments have adopted is based on achieving rapid, high economic growth, except for Bhutan, which is talking about gross national happiness rather than gross domestic product. And this is operationalized through privatization, trade and investment liberalization, and market and corporate friendly regulation. 
which are neoliberal policies and strategies. So neoliberalism is very much at the heart of our, the development model in Asia. Human rights, the rights of women, indigenous peoples, workers, fisher folk, peasants, the environment, and justice, all of these are easily sacrificed to keep private investments and capital flowing and to get, keep markets functioning. Asia is expected to be the engine that pulls the world out of global recession. And the strategy for this is to integrate local and national economies with regional and global economies through global value chains, which are, of course, led by corporations. Public interest is being redefined and expressed in market terms. And public-private partnerships, they serve as covers for privatization of critical sectors, such as water, healthcare, education, energy, transportation, and even security. So even security has been privatized. Those who have money can avail of public-private companies, but those who can't, well, too bad for you, you know? Jamali Guttal has been speaking about the growth of privatisation and deregulation in Asia to help markets achieve rapid growth across all sectors, including water, energy, transportation, security and healthcare. Of course, this comes at the expense of the rights of workers, women, peasants, Indigenous people and the environment. Let's get back to it. Now, reflecting global trends... Um, in Asia also, we're seeing, you know, wealth and assets continue to concentrate in the hands of elites and wealthy elites and corporations. Workers' wages remain low. Precarious employment and unemployment persist. And the climate crisis, environmental pollution and destruction are deepening. Thousands of people are being dislocated and displaced from their lands, environments and territories because of destructive investments, land and water grabbing, natural disasters and conflicts related to access and control over natural wealth, land, territories, and associated identities. And many of these lands are traditional lands. They are the lands of indigenous peoples. They are the lands of those who have been traditionally settled there for generations, even if they're not indigenous. I mean, there is, in fact, there are, you know, in, in countries like Cambodia, my own India, Philippines is much better, Laos. Um, you have to, Pakistan, you have to prove your indigeneity. You have to prove that you have actually a, a legitimate claim on those territories. It doesn't matter that your, you know, that your ancestors and your people have been settled there for, for, for three or four generations. You know, and this is also a very very clever way of pitting people against each other. You know, oh, this community is indigenous and you're not. So, it, so when a big company comes, the indigenous people will get free prior informed, not consent consultation. So only consultation, not the right to say no while the non-Indigenous people don't even get that. So it's also a very clever way of dividing, dividing communities, you know? Now, privatization is not new to Asia, but it's been promoted in various ways over the last 30 years. And today it's become so widespread that we take it for granted, almost as normal. And policymakers in most governments support private companies and contractors to take over governmental positions. And I'm, our office in Thailand is in a university, and some of my professor friends tell me that their students uh, who are, you know, in, the, in their late teens, early 20s, who grew up in the era when neoliberalism was, had started, are so used to privatization, they think it's completely normal. They think that this is, this is how things have always been, you know. 
and professors, the older professors are saying, no, 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 this is not how things always were, and this is not how things need to be either, right? Now, there's certainly a huge increase in wealth, in wealthy people and upper middle classes in Asia. But this is accompanied by an equivalent increase in inequality, poverty, and distressed migration. Asian corporations from developing countries are also on the rise. For example, India, Thailand, Indonesia, Cambodia, Philippines, and China, we all boast our own corporations. So in a way, it's sort of like, oh, we can show those Europeans, North Americans, and Australians. We can kick ass. We have our own corporations. What a thing to be proud of. I mean, really, you know. Because when these corporations invest domestically or abroad, they follow the same extractivist and and exploitative operation model as corporations from wealthy countries. So it doesn't matter that these are southern corporations or corporations from developing countries. When the bottom line is profit, they behave the same way, right? I especially want to draw your attention to three issues which I think are very key in this whole neoliberalism in Asia and connecting us all together. One is, the first is new generation free trade agreements or trade and investment uh, cooperation agreements. Now an important weapon in the neoliberal policy arsenal is trade liberalization. It's also called free trade. Nothing really free about it because it's really controlled and the rules are jigged to you know, for, for, for the more powerful, wealthier corporations to get access to markets, but it's still called free trade. Uh, which is pushed, and then free, this kind of trade is pushed through bilateral, regional, and global trade and economic partnership agreements. So, uh, I don't know, all of you familiar with the word ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations? Yeah. So, ASEAN countries, 10 countries, for example, they trade as a block, they have a free trade agreement among themselves. It's called AFTA, ASEAN Free Trade Agreement. South Asian countries have SAFTA. South Asian free trade agreement. ASEAN countries have a trade agreement with China. ASEAN, you know, ASEAN countries have trade agreement with Australia. And then Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia have what is called the AFMEX economic agreement, which is just among you know, trade and economic exchange among these. Uh, India has trade agreements with Finland, China, Philippines, Japan, and so on. You know, so they, these are their various combinations. Yeah. Now, of course, and all of you have heard of the World Trade Organization. Who hasn't heard of the WTO, and, um, which is sort of emblematic of you know, um, global trade liberalization? But more recently, though, we're seeing the rise of a new genre of economic arrangements, which we call the new generation free trade agreements. And these can be bilateral or plurilateral, so between countries or between a number of different countries. Yeah? These include the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, they include, uh, you know, which TPPs among the Pacific Rim countries, including Australia. Um, they include the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is uh, ASEAN countries, India, Australia, New Zealand, China, South Korea, Japan. Then there's a Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, the TTIP, which is the, T- the, the TPP version across the Atlantic, right? Um, there's EU India, there's EU uh, European Union India, European Union South Korea, ASEAN European Union, and so on. Now there is even a movement towards a free trade area of the Asia Pacific. Uh, so it could be just like a mega mega trade investment agreement, which is also being discussed. Now Australia is a part of a number of these agreements, um, so we're all connected, at least if nothing else, through TPP and through the Regional Comprehensive Economic partnership and a few other trade and investment agreements, yeah? 
You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast all across these stolen lands we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Shamali Guttal from the organisation Focus on the Global South, speaking at the Addison Road Community Centre in Sydney in October 2016. She has been outlining some of the regional groupings and trade agreements in the Asia-Pacific region and will now speak about some of the features of the new generation of free trade agreements and their role in aggressively pushing neoliberal policies. New generation FTAs, trade agreements, are much more ambitious from the outset. They go, they go well beyond the provisions in the World Trade Organization and they go well beyond removing tariffs and non-tariff barriers to the movement of goods and services across borders, yeah? what they call the liberalization of goods and services, which is basically moving in and out of the country. So what are these ambitions? First is that these new generation agreements include investment. And this is really important because trade, of course, deals with what goes across the borders. Investment is what happens in the heart of our economies and our societies. Yeah? So our economies are opened up for corporations to set up shop with rules that enable them to operate and maximize their profits at the costs of the rights of workers, small-scale food providers, and small-scale food providers include you know, those who produce, but also entrepreneurs, those who process, local markets, small-scale retailers. You know, So they are providing, they're, they're, doing, they're in the provisioning of food, right? And uh, they are also affected by that. It, of course, the rights of indigenous peoples and ordinary citizens, um, and corporations also set up shop at the cost of local food systems, local economies, the environment and climate. I mean, there are places in India where corporate retailing has so taken over that uh, a lot of people don't remember what the local seasonal vegetables are because the, the, the horticultural cooperatives can't survive. And if you go to Thailand, um, it, you, you want real Thai food, you go to the provinces. You know, in, in Cambodia, you want real Cambodian food, you go to the local market, you don't go to the supermarket because that's going to give you the, your standard, uh, you know, your standard potato onions, red onions, uh, capsicum and carrots and so on, right? Okay. Uh, another distinction is that these new generation agreements, they severely restrict the abilities of governments to protect the public interest through pub- appropriate laws and regulations. And this... Uh, restriction of the government to protect the public interest is very important for investment. Because if investments, if corporations are to invest in our economies and societies, they need to, they want to do it freely. If the government steps up for public interest, and public interest, you know, it means all those things, services and activities that we value beyond money, right? So the, you know, things that make our communities and societies respectful, harmonious and strong, you know, for example, public health, public education, other public services and infrastructure, uh, fair wages, workers' compensation, childcare, uh, special you know, health services for women and those who are more vulnerable, food subsidies and so on, right? And of course here we have food safety and quality standards, access to food, uh, access to and governance of land, access to water and water quality, um, even public finance, which is very important for public for the, for the public interest, you know, through progressive taxation, uh, distribution of revenues, access to credit, access to fair loans for students and for poor to the housing. All this is part of the public interest. So governments are restricted. They are not allowed to protect the public interest through appropriate laws and regulations. 
Instead, governments are expected to enact laws that enable and facilitate corporate profits. So more and more, we're seeing that where these agreements are being negotiated or are going into force, or preparation is being done for them, uh, governments are setting up, for example, what they call single window clearances for investments. So this we've seen in a number of countries. We've seen it in India, we've seen it in Bangladesh, we've seen it in um, Thailand, we've seen it in the Philippines, we've seen it in Cambodia. In, in Laos, they've tried to do it, and they keep messing around and falling apart, and eventually it's just like stamp everything that goes through, right? But single window clearances are basically that you don't go through social environmental assessment, social assessment, environmental assessment, financial assessment. You take your papers, if you're an investor, you go to one, it's, it's a single window, literally. Uh, what you pay, how you pay is another matter, we won't go into that, and you get your permission to go, yeah? And it doesn't seem to matter if corporations seize the lands of indigenous peoples or long-settled communities, or that women workers have no workplace protection, or they're fired for being pregnant, or they're fired for maternity leave, they don't get it, or that energy extraction destroys land for agricultural production or water sources, you know, or that education and housing prices rise so much that young people in our societies fall into traps of indebtedness. All of this doesn't seem to matter because the agreement has been signed. And if the agreement has been signed, or you're preparing, or your country's preparing to join such an economic partnership agreement, it has to assure investors that they have this enabling environment for, for, for them to come and invest. Yeah? Jamali Gotal has been speaking about the new generation of free trade agreements and their provisions around intellectual property rights that limit access to affordable generic medicines for the benefit of pharmaceutical companies. So, not surprisingly, these types of agreements also deepen the privatisation of key services and infrastructure. Now, another very dangerous thing about these trade and investment agreements that they include much stronger intellectual property rights. Um, and intellectual property rights, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. If you're not, I can talk to you more about it. But it's basically, these are rights that innovators or people or companies or people can claim as innovators, saying, we innovated this. So this is our intellectual property. Uh, you know, at a very basic level, I mean, farmers and breeders had intellectual property, quote-unquote, because they developed seed, right? Indigenous people have developed traditional seed. But they've never, patented, they've never tried to patent those in the market as intellectual property. Whereas a Cargill or a Monsanto or a buyer comes along and will, is, is always willing to patent um, seeds that they are able to get either through their own invention or through biopiracy as their own, right? But one of the places where the intellectual property rights provisions are very important is in access to medicines, and I'm sure many of you have heard about or read about the huge battles in the WTO, in the World Trade Organization, uh, on the trade-related intellectual property rights provisions where there were big battles between companies and different governments on the production of generic and cheaper medicines. Many countries, for example, India, South Africa, Thailand, they produce what they call generic medicines. Uh, and generic medicines are, are cheaper medicines, they're not branded. So, you know, instead of buyer aspirin, you would buy generic aspirin. Instead of buying, uh, you know, a big company's uh, anti-allergic medicine, you would buy, you know, the more generic version. But of course, where these are most important are in the case of life-threatening diseases, 
you know, and things that need longer-term care, yeah? For Alzheimer's, for Parkinson's, um, for diabetes, for cancer, for HIV AIDS. I mean, now in Thailand, um, many of these specialty medicines have become so brand, so expensive. When I go to India, I buy generic medicines from my friend's father who's suffering from Parkinson's. He, they just can't afford it, and there's no and no health insurance company is going to give it to them. So what's he going? You know, what are they going to do? So I and and I was only recently did I find out that if cust, if if customs in, in Bangkok Airport caught me, and if they're listening to it, they might look into my bag next time. And if they found six months supply of medicines, they can actually find me, because this is part of the intellectual property rights protection. You know, although I'm a small fry, they don't really care. But this is a very important issue. And what pharmaceutical companies are demanding in this new generation uh, property, IPR, sorry, intellectual property rights provisions, they're asking for something called data exclusivity. Data exclusivity, I'm sorry to get a bit technical, but this might be of use to you in the future if companies have taken over your, your medicines and everybody needs medicines. Um, no, because what, what um, data exclusivity is, it, it's data on... The, effic the efficiency and safety of drugs. So, you know, farm companies are supposed to test drugs when they put them on the market. Patents are given for a certain amount of time. Now, what companies are demanding, pharmaceutical companies are demanding, is that they're saying that once they have submitted this data to the Food and Drug Administration or the Public Health Department, they get to keep these forever. And other companies, smaller companies, who, can, who, who, would, who would, for example, um, manufacture generic medicines would have to buy this data from them. So that's why it's exclusive. And this is a big fight. Companies are, I mean, thankfully governments are fighting back. I think even Thailand is planning, was fighting back before the coup, but now who knows what happens. But the Philippines is fighting back, um, you know, India is fighting back. Um, I think Myanmar is still thinking about it. Bangladesh is fighting back. You know, a number of countries are saying, no, 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 this is too much, you know, beyond. So let, let's see. And the fight continues. And we have, you know, a lot of support here by, you know, physicians for public responsibility, the, the public, the, the people's health movement. They're all, all come out. Even Medisasa Frontier has come, and there's a big access to medicines campaign, right? So this is a very important issue, the intellectual property rights one in, in this. The other thing is they want patents to continue for longer. And by keeping patents on, what would basically mean is that smaller companies are not going to be able to get licenses to produce generics. Or they'll have to pay so much. And even if they produce, they will be restricted to, to a small market. So say Cambodia produces cheapened generic medicines and uh, somebody needs them in Indonesia, or say Indonesia says they would like to like to import them from, Indo from Cambodia. They won't be allowed to without paying huge duties to the company. In which case, there's no incentive for a smaller company to invest. Because all companies are not evil. I mean, all businesses are not evil. Companies produce medicines, we need medicines, and all of them are not you know, and, and But they're not going to be able to produce them if they're not going to be able to sell them. The other place where the intellectual property rights provisions are important is the issue of seeds. And Asia is home to some of the most, um, well, I was going to say biodiverse, biodiversity, sorry, that's a bit <laughs> repetitive, you know. But Asia is home to both huge natural biodiversity and agricultural biodiversity and different forms of fish, etc. you know. 
and and this agricultural biodiversity is the legacy and the wealth of people and communities. You know, it is people, and, and they uh, you know who, who've been who've been producing for years. Although TPP and regional economic comprehensive economic partnership and the other the you know trade deals with the Australian EU and the European Union haven't yet allowed the patenting of seeds. One of the preconditions for governments to enter into these agreements fully is that they have to agree to the rules of what is called UPOV, UPOV. Now UPOV is, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you the English translation. It's a French acronym, which is the International Union for the Protection of New Varieties of Plants. And this was set up by agribusiness companies and uh, a lot of uh, the, the governments of companies where I, that hosts uh, governments where that hosts agribusiness company, and basically the the, the whole the the, aid, the purpose of UPOF is to make sure that companies are able to get their intellectual property rights provisions and to you know protect their own seed breeding and their seed the profits from seeds. So all countries have to sign up to UPOF provisions, which are very very dangerous to local breeders and to local innovation. Uh, you know, just in Asia, we look. Um, the la- India is the largest contributor to rice varieties. At present, it's eighteen thousand and counting. Huh? All of them have still not been quoted. There are some universities in India where which have the seed banks. The seed bank is also there's a regional seed bank in the Philippines at the International Rice Research Institute. Uh, and under what is called materials transfer agreement, uh, universities from wherever companies can can access those seeds for research purposes. But then, but then we don't necessarily see what comes out after that. Then we see, you know, uh, Texmati and different types of jasmine rice that have been taken from Thailand, refurbished and then presented as new models, as new types of rice. The second largest rice varieties in Laos are in, I mean, uh, in, the, in Asia are in Laos, 30,000 and counting. And uh, Ministry of Agriculture officials that we've talked to are despairing. They say that they, they feel fear that these rice varieties will soon be completely lost because there are no cold chains and there are no free, you know, ways to preserve the rice. If, if, if farmers don't plant the rice in their fields, they have no other way of preserving their rice. And agricultural policies are moving farmers to move, you know, to stop using their own their own seeds and use hybrid seeds and so on. So there's a very real danger with these uh, trade and economic agreements um, of losing traditional sources of food and getting dependent um, on external production, you know, very important production practice. That was Shamali Guttal, Executive Director of Focus on the Global South, and I encourage you to check out their work at allofthews.focusweb.org and draw the connections for organising in Australia. Thanks to the Addison Road Community Centre for bringing this conversation to Marrickville. If you want to hear the rest of the talk, you can contact us by emailing earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or find our page on Facebook. I'm Jem Rommeld, and this show is Earth Matters, produced for 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The music you've heard on this show is from Amy Dang on the Free Music Archive. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next week for another episode of Earth Matters.
jailed black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. Every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. 